Hello, deconstruction community. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger, a show that gives a platform for people to share their stories of surviving toxic religious environments. As a trigger warning, a lot of topics on this show will revolve around religious trauma, mental health, and spiritual abuse. Hello, everyone. This is Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. And today I have on this show Dr. Lalich or Yanya Lalich, and she is a professor of sociology and is an international authority on cults and coercion. She's a researcher, author, educator, and she specializes in recruitment, indoctrination, and methods of influence and control. She has been studying social psychology of controversial groups and abusive relationships for 35 years, and she is the author and her co-author for six books, and I will link her books in the show notes so y'all can check that out. Thank you so much, Yanya, for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Andrew. I'm happy to be here. Oh, yes. You're so welcome. I'm super excited. I, I always love having experts on this show and like digging deep into topics. And I think it's great because a lot of the people, when I have experts on the show, there's always a deep personal story and a mission behind the work that they do. And that's why I'm so, so excited to talk to you and hear your story today. And the first question is, what was your childhood like? Um regarding religion and how that affects you and the work that you do today? Well, um, I was raised um, in the, hold on a second, I just have to put my leash on the dog so she mm -hmm. doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was raised in Milwaukee in the Serbian community. My, both my parents were Serbian. Um, my father was an immigrant. He came over when he was about 16 by himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and my mother's parents were immigrants and met, but they met in America. They didn't come over together. Um, and so in Milwaukee, there was I, I was a very um, beautiful uh, Serbian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox church. Um, mm -hmm. And the sermons were all in Serbian. So I never understood any of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably to my advantage. I don't know. But um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I, you know, I, my, my siblings and I sort of really didn't, we wanted to be American. So we never really learned the language that our parents, mm. aunts and uncles, everybody were speaking. So, yeah. um, so during the church service, which was really quite beautiful, the, the priest b basically sings the whole liturgy and waves around all this incense. And then there's a choir and the people sing and, um, it's quite beautiful, but I never knew what any of it was saying. But also outside, we had a big, what, what was called the American Serb Hall. And so every Sunday after church, we had a big picnic and they would be barbecuing whole lambs on spits outside that you could mm. smell in between the incense from the priest. So <laughs> I was mostly <laughs> just waiting to get out to the picnic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
So then we'd have, you know, everybody just get hunks of lamb and, and Serbian bread and just raw onions and everybody ate themselves silly and then danced into the night um, with, you know, to the Serbian musicians and did cola dancing. So uh, the way religion mostly impacted me was that we lived in a very um, Catholic neighborhood. And so I got mm -hmm. a lot of flack from other kids for not being Catholic. Oh. And, um, you know, we I suppose to them, we had this kind of weird religion. And mm. so I was always told, you know, I wasn't even going to go to hell. I was just going to go to purgatory and <laughs> forever. And so that was kind of creepy. Um, but other than that, I, you know, I, I went to different churches with some of my high school friends, mm -hmm. Presbyterian church, this and that. But uh, religion was kind of around me, but I never mm. really related to it as any kind of spiritual solution or religious. I, I never considered mm -hmm. myself religious, I guess. Let me say that. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so was there any part of that that inspired you to become an authority on cults and coercion? Well, what inspired me to become, um, to start researching and knowing about cults was that I myself was in a cult. Mm. Uh, so back in the 70s and 80s, um, I had just come back from living in Europe for a while and I joined a political cult. So it wasn't um, religious mm -hmm. at all. It was, mm -hmm. um, we were going to have make the revolution and we were going to get rid of racism and sexism and all those terrible mm. things. And yeah. I was 30 years old at that time. And so I really felt like I had found something really meaningful and that it was time to kind of put my money where my mouth was and dedicate, you know, so I became a very dedicated soldier for the revolution. And obviously I didn't know what I was joining was a cult and mm. it was a pretty, um, a pretty awful experience, 10 and a half oh, years. Wow. Um, so when I got out of that, that's and got my brain back together. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I decided to really um, study and research and ended up kind of in this field. Yes. And so could you walk me through the process of how you were recruited into the cults and really relate that to the general methods that these cults use to recruit people and indoctrinate them? Sure. So in my case, um, I was new, I was relatively new in town. Um, you know, as I said, I'd been living in Europe for about four years. So I came back, decided it was time to come back to the States. And I came to San Francisco because <clears throat> a college friend was living there and they had an opening in their house. Someone was moving out. <laughs> Excuse me. So... Um, so I was new in town, which is kind of one of the vulnerabilities for people mm. who join cults. Yeah. I was making new friends. Um, and I would, and it was also, you know, I had, I had been politically oriented. Um, I was always kind of a leftist, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. from various experiences in my life and also in college. So I, um, I got a job actually at the um, at a bookstore that was kind of the lefty bookstore. And I would run into this woman who was a friend of my uh, roommate. And we'd have these big political discussions because mm. this was now 
um, after the end of the Vietnam War. So people on the left were kind of trying to figure out, well, what do we do now? Um, and so I, that was the milieu that I was in. And I would run into this woman and we'd have these great political discussions. And then one day she said, um, she asked if she could come over to my apartment with a friend and she did. And they said, oh, well, we have this study group. Would you like to join the study group? And I said, sure, right? So again, this is kind of a typical yeah. recruitment tactic. It was a front group. I had no idea mm. there was something behind the study group. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to me again because I was new in town and I thought, well, I'll meet new yeah. people. And I always had kind of an intellectual bent. And so yeah. that's really great to me. So <clears throat> and they made and they made it like I wasn't supposed to tell anybody. So that was kind of the first sign of something weird. And I was like, well, what do you mean? I'm not supposed to tell anybody. And they said, well, you know, we just don't want it to get too big. We just want to invite the people we want to invite. And so I was like, oh, OK. So I let that one ride. Mm. Um, and then the study group met once a week and we read different pamphlets by different revolutionary leaders. And so it was, it was again, sort of educating me into the belief system of this group that I didn't know existed. <laughs> right. So again, mm -hmm. it's kind of typical, whether it's, yeah. it's Bible study or studying about them, how to be a good multi-level marketing person. Mm -hmm. with so that after a few weeks in the study group, um, oh, so first of all, in the study group, everybody took a turn presenting the material. And when it was my turn, of course, they praised me and said how brilliant I was and blah, blah, blah. Mm. So that's another common thing, which we call love bombing, right? Yes. Which they make you feel very special and like, oh, my gosh, you're just the greatest. And oh, these people yeah. just and you know it's like suddenly you've got all these people around you mm. who think you're fantastic and so that feels good mm. so then they asked to meet with me again at my apartment so then they met with me and they said and the woman said um well what have you been learning in the study group and I said well I've been learning that in order to really make fundamental social change you have to have um a disciplined Marxist Leninist party mm. And she said, oh, that's right. And um, and then she said, well, what if I told you we have one? So then oh. you're I'm like, oh, wow, what? Mm. You know. So this is, again, there's this kind of bait and switch. And so she says, well, do you think you'd like to join? And I said, well, yeah, I'd like to hear more about it. And she said, well, first, you have to fill out this application, right? So here's the bait and switch. So now mm. I had to fill out this long, long, long application that was everything about me, my parents, where they lived, where every place I had lived, my bank accounts, my passport number, you know, what my parents did for a living, on and on and on. So at this point, they knew everything about me. And then, of course, a few a week or so later, they came and said, OK, you know, yes, you've been accepted into the organization. I really had no clue what I was joining. I didn't know there was a leader. They said it didn't really have a name. They told me it was large, that it was mm. international, that it had, you know, people of color and other ethnicities. And mm -hmm. they made it sound huge. Well, I actually found out there were about 25 people at that point. Right? <laughs> so obviously, you know, that kind of lying a little bit in the beginning, the deception during the recruitment is very common. Um, and so it it kind of went from there. That that's how I got in, and then ten and a half years later, fortunately, I got out. Mm. 
And what was that process where you like to get out? Like, when did you first doubt? And I, I know it takes time to come out of that indoctrination. So how did that start for you? And what was that process like? So what happened in my case is that um, I was always... Um, I was always uh, very, um, very highly regarded in the cult. So they kept moving mm. me up the ranks. And so most of the time I was in high leadership oh. and in the inner circle around the leader. And that meant that I was, I had some perks, yes, for being in leadership. Like I didn't have to sell as many newspapers as other people did. But it also meant that I was exposed to a lot of the really, evil stuff and the corruption and mm. the leader was an alcoholic and all these things that yeah. most members had no clue about. So after about five years of that, I really couldn't, I, I was like, I don't want to be in the inner circle anymore. I want to get away. And, and also something very personal happened in, in relation to the death of my mother, mm. which for me was kind of like, the straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. And, and the way I see it is that everybody in a cult has doubts. They do, even the mm. true believers, like I was a true believer, but all along I had doubts, but you have no way to express those doubts, right? Mm, yeah. So you, the way I, I sort of use this metaphor of you shove these things on the, on this shelf in the back of your head. Mm. And then one day it's one too many things and that shelf breaks. Oof, yeah. When that shelf breaks, it doesn't mean you necessarily think it's a cult and it doesn't mean you're going to boom, leave at that moment, mm. but it, that you recognize that something is really wrong and that this is probably not a healthy thing for you. And then you may start kind of plotting your way out. And depending on the group you're in, that may be easier or harder. Like in mm. my, I knew they'd come after me because I had a lot of high level information, right? And we did go after people. I also had no money. Wow. I had a broken down car. I didn't think I could get very far. I didn't, I just had, so no one was holding a gun to my head. I could have walked out the door mm. I couldn't figure out how to do it. I just couldn't. Yeah. So for five years, I was absolutely miserable. And mm. I would get in my car every day and wish that I would die in a car accident. Because that, wow. was, the, that was the Ooh. only way I could see getting out. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, I think that's a really good illustration of the kind of psychological trap that people mm. feel like they just can't yeah. get out. Mm. Um, so what happened ironically is that we finally had our revolution and we overthrew our leader and we all got oh. out. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So this is quite unusual. I can only think of one or two cults where this has happened, but basically our leader was out of the country and those of us in the inner circle decided to pull everybody together and tell them what was going on. Mm. And at there were about 140 members Th at some point thousands had passed through but that was kind of the core group so we called everyone together we told them what was going on it took about a week to convince them that mm. we were just making this stuff up yeah and then um the night before she was coming back uh from europe we took a vote and we voted to expel her and to mm. dissolve the organization and then the next day, a team of people met with her and told her the party's over. Mm, <laughs> oh, no. 
And so then we all just, you know, we all helped each other with um, mm -hmm. helping each other get some clothes for job interviews, um, you know, creating help helping each other create resumes and like I was I was used as a reference for a lot of people because I ran we had a publishing house that I ran mm -hmm. so I would say oh yes yeah, so and so worked at the publishing house for the last 10 years you know blah 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 and so we did whatever we could to help each other kind of get mm -hmm. on with um and I myself decided to move to New York um because I figured I could get a job in New York in publishing um so that's that's kind of how it went. That oh wow. Yeah, I mean that is quite unusual when the uh, members overthrow the leader. Now, I'm just curious what did the leader do once they found out that it was over? Like I know cult leaders don't react well to losing their power. So how did this person react? So what happened is um we we um sort of chose a team of people to meet with her and one of the women wore a wire so that we could hear oh. the whole encounter mm -hmm. and so people went to her hut her house which was actually rented by us our money mm -hmm. in san francisco she also had a house in the country um so one of we went there ahead or the team went there ahead of time and they got rid of the guns because she had guns and they mm -hmm. um took the she had she had big rottweiler guard dogs they took the guard oh, wow. put them somewhere mm -hmm. and then one of the bodyguards went to pick her up from the airport and brought her back mm -hmm. and she walked in and she sat in her big leather chair and you know the seven yeah. or eight people were sitting there and they said to her it's over you know while you were gone blah 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 and the party is over and she didn't get it she like didn't get she just said oh. what what and then at one point, she pulled out a cigarette, and we did everything for her, right? We, we She had mm. two who were like her maidservants who practically blew her nose, right? So she pulled out a cigarette, and she was like holding her cigarette, waiting for someone to jump up and light her cigarette. <laughs> and, when, and when no one did, that's when she got it. She, and then mm. she stood up and said, God damn it, and threw the cigarette down and started swearing and... Uh. And they told her, yep, it's over. You've got a month to get out of this house. And mm. so, yeah, she didn't take it well. She tried no. to sue us, actually. She tried to sue us oh, my. for wrongful termination. And um, I guess some lawyer told her that was nonsense. So, <laughs> yes. And I, you know, I think it's interesting because there's always a certain type of person that is becomes a cult leader so could you dig into the characteristics of cult leaders and their personality disorder and why people are drawn to them sure so i would say almost 100 percent of cult leaders are narcissists mm -hmm. which means um they have narcissistic personality disorder if we want to get clinical about it but basically it means that Everything is about them and their ego and satisfying their needs. And there are different kinds of uh, narcissists and the cult leaders who, so there's four categories. The cult leaders who are sort of the worst, the meanest ones um, are, mm -hmm. are often what are called malignant narcissists, which means they, they have a bit of 
of um, sadism and they're, they're a little bit of a sociopath, right? Mm, yeah. And so they, they're the ones who do like the really evil things. Like if you think mm. of, of Keith Ranieri from Nexium. Oh, yeah. Creating that, the sex slaves or mm. uh, Larry Ray, who was the father at the Sarah Lawrence, the cult at the Sarah Lawrence College, mm. where he really brutally tortured these oh, young wow. students who got involved mm. in that cult with him. Um, so not all of them will be necessarily that evil, mm -hmm. but all will be completely self-centered and want their needs met. And they they also tend to have no empathy. So they really could give two hoots about anybody else. It's mm. just all about them. And, um, and they can often be very charming and charismatic. Uh. And yeah. so that is where the appeal comes in so that they tend to be um, kind of good conversationalists and glib. And they kind of, they sort of have this instinctual way that they know how to push your buttons and get you to respond. So when they give their talks or whatever, whatever method they're using, um, they often get people really enthralled like oh my god you know this is the master speaking whatever a lot of that is because of the peer pressure because mm. other people around you are ooing and eyeing, and then you feel like you should ooh and ah and so you kind of get drawn into it even if you don't feel it as intensely as everyone else and of course in the early recruitment they're doing that love bombing to kind of make you mm. feel so, so the leaders I, I believe are actually quite lazy <laughs> um, they all they need to do is recruit one person in the beginning, and then that person recruits another person. And it's really uh, leaders who do all the work, right? The mm -hmm. top leaders um, operate by by what we call charisma by proxy. So they're speaking in the name of the leader, right? So you're supposed to listen to them and obey. So as as the cult grows and more people go out and recruit, and they're going to look for high functioning people. So this idea that it's stupid, lazy, crazy people that get into cults. So that's nonsense because mm -hmm. they want people who are going to run the businesses, who are going to recruit, who are going to bring in their contacts and lend legitimacy. Mm -hmm. um, just like Keith Ranieri again had had himself, you know, posing with the Dalai Lama, you know, which they spent a year kind yeah. of seducing him into doing that and paid him a million dollars to stand there. Oh my. Him, right. <laughs> so, um, so the cult leaders are very clever in that way of getting people to kind of do their bidding and they can kind of sit back and whether it's the 93 Rolls Royces like Rajneesh wanted or whether mm. it's sex, whether it's money, you know, it's usually some combination of money and sex and of course power. It's all mm -hmm. about yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because as you were describing a malignant narcissist, I just kept thinking of Trump, <laughs> honestly, because <laughs> with all the January 6th hearings that have happened, which has shocked so many people. I mean, I think we all knew Trump had narcissistic tendencies, but a lot of evidence that one thing that really opened people's a lot of eyes was that, you know, before he wanted to go to the Capitol, people were like oh my gosh they have guns they have weapons and trump's like oh they're not for me exactly they're so it doesn't matter 
Right, like, exactly. No one else matters, just me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so exactly. that was just, oh my gosh, insane. So I'm just curious, what is your take on the QAnon cult and that phenomenon? Well, the way I see it is that um, because there was that year when we were sheltered in because of mm, COVID, yeah. and um, so people were really isolated, even if they lived mm. with people, like they, you know, they, they, they didn't have a social life anymore. They weren't going out. So people were spending a lot more time on their computers or their iPads or whatever. Um, and then these you know these algorithms which frankly i don't understand but apparently if yeah. you find something there's an algorithm who's going to go aha and then they'll lead you down this other path and then they'll, oh, go, they'll lead mm. you over. and so by spending all that time on the internet they landed in these places of of these conspiracy theories and whether it's QAnon and later the anti-vax movement and all of that and it was mm. It, it because of the isolation people were feeling and maybe a little bit of despair because of this yeah. pandemic that we'd never experienced anything like that in, in our lifetime. So, mm -hmm. so people were kind of like landing in these places and feeling this sense of community, even though it was online. But they mm. felt, oh, here's something really interesting. Oh, my God, I never thought of that. Oh, my God, this is really powerful. Oh, look at all these people who believe this. Oh, look how they're saying nice things to me. Oh, and so more and more people got caught up in the QAnon fervor and the, you know, the deep state and Hillary Clinton eating babies and, you know, all that, uh, all that insane stuff. That yeah. Some of us were like, how could this be? But if you step back for a minute and kind of put yourself in the, in those people's shoes, you can mm. see, okay, people were lonely blah, blah, and they just got caught up in this. And, mm -hmm. and it really created, even though we did see cult behavior on, on the internet before that, it mm -hmm. really exacerbated it. It Ooh. really increased um, the amount of sort of the amount of power that the, cults on the internet were having and the and because they actually were also mobilizing people and getting people to yeah. go do things mm. and most cults in you know i would say just from my 35 years of doing this most cults don't act outward right they act inward right mm -hmm. And a few may go after people, enemies on the outside, but most don't do that. Most kind of mm -hmm. keep it to themselves. But what happened with these internet cults was they picked up on the divisiveness, I think, that that the um that Trump was spreading and fostering and the hate and the division between people mm. and versus them. And so they they were acting out in a way that I think cults have never done before. And so, so then we saw them all heading to January 6th, even if they didn't really know what was going to happen there. It was like, yeah. there was an activism to it that mm. was outward yeah. and it was hateful and it was us versus them. And so yeah. that, that's a very cult-like uh, behavior and very unfortunate because it unleashed um, so much ill feeling in our country. Mm. Yes, was definitely. And like, with these people, with their recruiting online, you know, what I've noticed is that, you know, when people from cults share their message with you, 
you know, it's like they've discovered the answer to the world's problems or they've discovered this horrible thing that needs to be absolutely solved or spread awareness to. And it's like a life or death situation, mm -hmm. do or die. And, you know, I think it's interesting because I've been curious to see how the cult members of QAnon have reacted as the January 6th hearings have happened and have and how Republicans that were dedicated to Trump had to be honest under oath and talk about the terrible things that he did. And people that were really supported him then would be like, this man is absolutely corrupt. And then, you know, Trump's house was just raided by the FBI, which is really great. But <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I wonder how these people are going to react to it. And a lot of things that I saw online were, you know, I, I've seen how Christianity, our Christian nationalism has just intertwined itself into QAnon and these Christians, extremists are inside of it. And they believe that Donald Trump is under some kind of spiritual attack um, from something. And they're like acting yeah. like he's still the savior and like denying all these terrible things that he had, he's done. And I think looking at that it shows how in these cults the end justifies the means it doesn't matter how nasty or awful trump is as long as he pushes their agenda it really doesn't matter yeah absolutely i mean that's one of for me that's <clears throat> one of the characteristics of a cult is mm. the ends justifies the means philosophy you know that yeah. extremist ideology whether it's religious or spiritual or political or whether mm -hmm. it's chocolate chip cookies it doesn't matter yeah. mm -hmm. the fact that the ends justify the means and once you accept that philosophy anything goes Ooh. and that's when it can get really dangerous and that, that is what we're seeing mm. um, with the christian nationalism and mm. you know they've been working for years on that oh and, yeah and they, and they found their man mm. and um, they're running with it and and it's a really you know, I think it's a really dangerous time in our country mm. for people to be able to work to to stop any further damage. Mm. Yes, most definitely. And so, you know, I'm just curious, when you left the cult, how long did it take you to become a cult expert? And like, when did you realize you wanted to do that? And how did that work out? So, um, so what happened is, I, you know, in the beginning, I really just felt like I was so happy. I was like, I felt like I'd been let out of prison. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm free. Um, and then part of me was very also very confused and afraid. And and I, you know, I was in New York and I, I did, you know, I'd been like in this bubble for 10 years. So I really didn't know how to talk to people. And I hadn't seen any movies, you know, mm -hmm. and I, cultural mecca and you know I, I just felt really weird you know like a stranger like people could tell there was something wrong with me you know mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so that was really awkward I mean luckily I had a I, I had a nice comfortable job with a really good boss and it was in the suburbs so I, I wasn't like right in the middle of Manhattan which I think would have been too much stimulus mm -hmm. um, and I started looking for things I could read. But at that time, so this was 1986, 87. And there was mm -hmm. nothing political cults. Everything was about religious cults. So I'm trying yeah. to think, like, were we really a cult? We were, yeah. you know, so I started making lists and comparisons and just reading 
anything. And then when I found the work of Robert Lifton, mm. uh, who wrote yeah. this fabulous book called Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism, yeah. um, that was really the first book that really explained to me the process, you know, the social psychological process that, quote, brainwashed me or that changed. Mm. Yeah. And, and also because his study was of communist China. So it was a political situation and, and his work really saved my life. Um, but then at, at one point, I'd say after, I don't know, six months or so out, um, I kind of crashed and I decided I really needed help. I needed therapy. And fortunately mm-hmm. in New York at the time, there was a cult clinic, which was- Oh, nice. Yeah, it was sponsored by the um, Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. And the clinic had therapists who understood about cult after effects. Mm. They also led groups for families who had someone in a cult. It doesn't exist anymore, but someone mm-hmm. told me about it. I mean, I never thought to look in the phone book, yeah. you know, cult mm-hmm. clinic, <laughs> but yes, about it. Mm-hmm. And I called and I got this fabulous therapist. So I would say I spent three years, probably going two, three times a week. Um, And I, in the beginning, I was really in desperate shape. I had, Mm. I had so much guilt and shame because I had been in leadership and because Mm. of the things that I did. And I think most people coming out of cults have a lot of guilt and shame because, you know, they either did things they had to do, or they witnessed things that they couldn't do anything about. And then when, when you get out, you know, it's, it's called moral injury. You've, you, yeah. you, you hate this about yourself that you did that, that you didn't act or that you did that, you know, whatever. And so mm-hmm. I had to spend a lot of time on that um, and working through that and s- sort of going to people and apologizing and just trying to make amends in whatever way I could. And, um, and then I moved back to San Francisco because New York got to be a little too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and and I started going to conferences and speaking about political cults, which was a big deal because no one was doing that. So mm-hmm. and then I wrote an article, a long article about my cult that was um, published in the Cultic Studies Journal in the mm-hmm. mid 90s. Yeah. Um, and or the early 90s, I guess. Um so I went back to California and all that time I thought about, oh, I, I want to go to grad school, but I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do and I couldn't make a decision. Decisions are really hard to make when you get out of a cult. Mm, yeah, most People definitely. Say, Let's go to the movies. What do you want to see? And I'd say, oh, you decide. I can't decide. You know, like the littlest things, you're afraid to make decisions. So anyway, eventually... A few people encouraged me and I applied to grad school. I had already written a couple of books and was doing a lot of speaking and stuff. And then um, got my PhD, um, ended up doing my dissertation as a comparative study of the cult I was in and the Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. which um, committed the, quote, suicides um, in yeah. 96 or seven. Yeah. And so then I got a full-time teaching job, which meant that I couldn't devote everything to cult stuff, but I did, you know, I had support groups for former members. I talked to a lot of families and, and went to conferences and presented and this and that, and wrote a couple more books. And, um, you know, the way I saw it was that 
I, I took a bad thing and turned it into a good thing. That's sort of how I saw what I was doing with that experience um, and have felt very, um, you know, very passionate about both mm -hmm. educating the public about cults to kind of demystify and destigmatize members and former members. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, my other priority is working with survivors. Um, and so that now I, I do courses online, recovery courses, and um, just doing whatever I can before I, you know, croak. <laughs> oh, I'm no. Seven, so it's like you never know when the day is um, going to come. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it is so inspirational when people really take the darkness that they went through and turn it into light and positivity. And I know Robert J. Lipton is someone who inspired you. Were there any other people who inspired you to do the work that you do today? Well, certainly, um, I would say Margaret Singer, who was my colleague. Mm. Uh, Margaret, oh, wow. Margaret Singer was a, was a cl clinical psychologist at Berkeley, and she was she had actually uh, worked with Lifton and with Edgar Schein, who wrote the book called Coercive Persuasion. Um, mm. They were in, I think Lifton was in the Air Force, and Schein was in the Navy, and Margaret worked at some navy something or other i don't know but anyway um so when when people started calling her about their kids being in cults it reminded her of this work that lifton and shine had done when they were colleagues back in the 50s um so she kind of became the preeminent cult expert at that time like in the 60s and 70s and 80s when um, when there were a lot of what was called the Jesus movement, you know, the groups like the children, yeah. so many groups recruiting and the Hare Krishna and the Moonies and this one and that one, and parents were really concerned. And so Margaret was just getting, you know, thousands of calls, um, mm. sort of met, I met her, she didn't live far from me. And I met her at a, um, American Psychological Association conference. And we became really good friends. And then I co-wrote two books with her because she didn't have any books out. And I said, Margaret, you've written all these articles in psychological yeah. journals, but nobody finds those, you know, except that yeah. got to do something mm -hmm. public. So um, I found a publisher and we wrote two books together. And she was a she was a, a mentor and a friend. She was a wonderful, wonderful lady. Oh, yeah. A lot of fun, super smart. Um, so yeah, I'd say she's certainly the other, and she is one of the people who really encouraged me to go on to grad school and get my PhD. So, uh, certainly I'm grateful to her and for her friendship and her guidance. Mm, yes, most definitely. And so I'm just curious for grad school, what was your, what was your PhD degree in? Was it sociology? Well, it's actually, um, sort of an interdisciplinary degree. And so, Ooh, called, okay. Um, the degree is actually human and organizational systems mm -hmm. with an emphasis in sociology. So uh, okay. most of my professors were sociologists or some very, maybe a social mm -hmm. psychologist. Um, but I, I essentially consider myself a sociologist or a social mm -hmm. psychologist yeah. um, mm -hmm. just because of the work that I do and the research I've done. So. Mm, yes, it's definitely the, and I think, you know, on some level, it doesn't really matter what someone does their degree in if they want to work yeah. in the world. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the masters in social, I'm sorry, the masters in social work is a mm -hmm. really excellent degree. Oh yeah. And people can do a lot with that degree mm. um, across the country. Whereas some degrees are only good in the state that mm -hmm. licensed in and, and it doesn't carry over to other yeah. states. So, mm -hmm. to, you know, if you want to be a clinician or if you want to be a, mm -hmm. a researcher or, mm -hmm. you know, just help people whatever way you can, yeah. but um, there's certainly a need for more therapists who understand mm. after effects. Mm -hmm. Yes, most definitely. And so what do you think needs to change in the educational system to help prepare um, mental health professionals to be prepared for that? Well, I think um, I've, for mental health professionals, I think there, there needs to be more education. Like my colleague and I have started doing courses for therapists mm -hmm. where they get CEU credits. And oh, okay. um, we've been sort of trying to educate them about how to work with cult survivors or survivors of narcissistic abuse or, you know, similar kind of situation. Um, they need to re really recognize about complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. There's PTSD and then yeah. there's PTSD and people who were in cults or come out of cults or those kinds of relationships, they actually have complex PTSD, mm -hmm. which has, has different symptoms um, and effects than PTSD. And so more therapists need to understand that. And it's kind of a battle because they use this book called the DSM which is kind of their Bible for diagnosing people mm -hmm. and that they get paid through the health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And because CPTSD isn't in this book yet, because oh, no. it's so political, it's all political, uh... um, then they tend to ignore it. But really understanding the effects of the trauma that happens in cults is, is what we call relational trauma. It has mm. with your relationships with other people and what's done to you or what yeah. you do to others. Whereas post-traumatic stress disorder is kind of one type of trauma, one incident, like maybe yeah. your house burns down or a horrible car mm -hmm. crash or, or you go to war and you kill people, but it's yeah. just one thing. Whereas with complex PTSD, it goes on for yeah period of time and it's all relational it's all about the relationships mm. and being controlled and 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 uh coerced in that way so it's it's different and um so more more mental health professionals need to understand about that and mm. and work with clients in that way and uh help them debrief as i say a debrief from mm. the experience um, yeah because if you don't if you don't unpack the cult experience first when you're in therapy, then if you're looking back at your childhood or whatever, you're still looking at it through the eyes of the cult, right? So mm. you can strip all that yeah. away first. And then you can go back and look at your childhood or your life before or whatever. But first mm -hmm. you have to get into the cult stuff. Um, so anyway, that's kind of my pitch on that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because 
you know, whenever I I think of complex PTSD, I always an analogy I think of is like a snowball rolling down a hill. Oh, it starts great. small <laughs> and it picks up a lot along the way and just builds and builds and builds. And why is complex PTSD so political in um this space? Why don't people want to put it? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in that space. I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, everything about, I mean, I think a lot of things in this diagnostical and statistical manual, the DSM, you know, there's a committee and then they mm. are back and forth and this and that. And I, I don't know why. Um, I, I wish it would get settled because I think it would help, even though mm-hmm. I don't completely relying on the DSM is what. Yeah. What, what therapists should do i mean for a mm-hmm. long it said homosexuality was a disease so you know yeah what, i mean let's get real about what this yeah. is right mm-hmm. so. yeah i mean yeah i've definitely talked with different people and, and have a lot of different opinions on it and i've heard that commonly a lot is that you know it's you know it has been revised several times and i think I think it was the book I read. I think the body keeps the score. Mm. Um, the writer of that was just really upset because they would not add developmental trauma disorder, which was something uh, they commonly saw in people. Mm-hmm. And he really talked about how big pharma really, really. Yes. Like they influence it so much because, you know, big pharma, they don't want you to go to therapy. They want you to get medication and just take pills and to constantly renew it, which medication can be a great thing for certain mental illnesses and for people. Um, But when it comes to trauma, medication is not going to help you process trauma. Now, I think combining therapy and medication is great. It's been helpful for me to have both of that together. But I think too many people have just um, appealed to authority and been like, oh, well, they say take medication. I'll be fine. So right. I'll just do this. And hmm. for me, when I first started on medication and avoid therapy, I noticed that it was like it was covering up the trauma. It was still there, but it was just covering it up. And so the combination of medication and therapy has been so great. And now, you know, being in therapy, I'm slowly going off of very strong medication to less strong to, you know, to as I adjust to my own life and different things. And I'm just curious, what, what are, if you can talk about this, what different cults have you worked with, I guess, or survivors of cults, at least? I know you've done so many. If you could name like a few. Probably the question is, what cults haven't I worked with? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, certainly, the, you know, the Children of God, um, mm-hmm. the Way International, the Fellowship of Friends, the... Um, the one I shall mm. not name because they go yes. people. The, oh no, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> um, the exclusive brethren, the Plymouth brethren, the the two by twos, which is a very secretive cult that very few people know about that has hundreds of thousands of members. Mm. Um, other political cults similar to mine, like the Revolutionary Workers Party, or the mm. um, there was one, the Socialist Rifle Association. Huh. And, I mean, you name it. I, I mean, oh, you know, it's yeah. been a long time. I mean, I'm, someone asked me once to make a list and I was like, oh, you got to be kidding. I mean, I can't even remember that far back. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. Certainly Nexium and the Branch Davidians and, you know, the really Heaven's Gate 
you know, one mm. ones. Um, so yeah, and and it amazes me because every week, almost every day, I hear of a new one or several that I oh, have wow. before. It's just massive. It's massive, and it's everywhere. I mean, we mm. you know do these Zoom courses, recovery courses, and we've had people in our courses from England the Netherlands, Sweden, Slovenia, wow. Mexico, Spain, Portugal, Canada. Um, what am I forgetting? Um, I mean, un unbelievable. The country, it, you know, it's everywhere. It's not just in America. So. Mm, yes. And so did you ever expect to be one of the top gold <laughs> experts in the world? <laughs> no, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, you know, and I would say, I mean, it's true that I, I wrote the, the books I wrote were mm -hmm. the last one, I think, was 2021 or something, 22. Mm -hmm. um, I'm redoing Take Back Your Life, which is kind yeah. of the classic, and I'm revising it and updating it at this point. But um, a lot, a lot of, I would say a lot of my my presence has grown uh, since I retired. So I retired mm. in 2019 from the university. Mm. And since then, first the pandemic happened and then, you know, all the internet cults and QAnon and all of that. Yeah. And, then, um, and then I started doing these courses and it's just mushroomed. I mean, I'm, and, and podcasts became a thing, you know, yeah. I, I must do probably five podcasts a week of interviews. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> and documentaries and this and that. So it really has blossomed since my retirement. Um, mm. So, and it's, you know, I, I enjoy it. I mean, this is what I love doing. I don't have to grade papers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Chase after students, although I love teaching, but yeah, you know, it's really, you know, at this point, kind of my life's work. And so I, I do enjoy it. Um, even though sometimes I get a bit overwhelmed mm. oh, yes. day to hear these stories you can imagine mm. yes I'm sure it, it takes such a toll um, well, can I ask I don't really know much about your background where you <laughs> you were in a cult I take yeah it was yes I grew up in the IFB cult oh, yes. okay yes um, it was crazy because i as a kid, I thought I was normal and I didn't actually come to the conclusion that it was a cult until this year, until I began digging into cult education and learning about the bite model and Robert J. Lipton's criteria for thought reform and started seeing the connections. And, yeah. and I think the struggle too is when you leave a cultic environment, you're stuck with this black and white mindset. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I had a very black and white mindset to the term cult and yeah. so when I actually learned that it was a continuum and a spectrum I was like oh because <laughs> <laughs> I was like wow that yeah that was a cult <laughs> um but yeah so my my dad he my dad and my mom they graduated from Hiles Anderson College uh which was a cult in and of itself <laughs> honestly it was an IFB fundamentalist college in I think Chicago Mm. and you know the founder was Hiles Anderson and there is I think a podcast that kind of digs into the cult following of that I think it's called Preacher Boys um, yeah, they yeah. 
they dig into the IFB um, cults and the different leaders and movements throughout it. But it was interesting because um, I've been working on a book since I was 19, just kind of writing about my experiences in the cult and experiencing religious trauma. And for me, it was just kind of like um, a way to heal and to really process different traumas. And it wasn't until I think probably a year or so ago that I decided that I eventually want to publish it. I'm not sure when is like my little baby and I want to <laughs> hold it for as long as I can. Um, and especially as like I'm learning so many new things every day. It's like, yeah, I want to wait. I want to sit on this one a while <laughs> before um, I put it out. And I think, you know, looking back, um, realizing the cult like obsession that you know, my my church and my parents had with the pastor and how he was really a cult leader. And I just never, <laughs> I never really like thought about that until I learned more. And it was just, there were red flags to me growing up, but like, I didn't have the terminology or the language to right. even label it or know. I just, there was just an, an, an alert or feeling inside of me and like examples of um the cult like a session is that there would be there was one instance in my cults that one of the members they were in the pulpit and they were praying to god and they were asking that we all be more like brother bobby <laughs> which was the leader and so that was just really bothered me because i'm like you know usually in those places you know you're trying to be more like jesus and follow his example but the fact that this person prayed to their god that they want to be more like this other man and how they mm. see him as on level with God almost deified yeah. him. I was like, it just gave me the chills when that happened when I was my teen years. I was like, uh. and my parents, they were really, I mean, they were really miserable at the church or cult for a long time, but they stayed because they were so dedicated um, to the leader. And they really saw anyone that left as unfaithful or they let down the leader and it was just shameful. And so they just had this attachment to him. And they would just, I didn't, as a child, I didn't understand it because they would, when they would talk about him, they would like tear up and start crying sometimes. They just loved him so much. Mm. And now looking back, I see um, really it was just, they were enamored by him. And, you know, he, he wasn't an abusive person, thankfully. Um, he was generally a nice person and he was kind. He never had any kind of scandals of any kind, and which I think is rare <laughs> to happen in these situations. Um, but the way the way he had some charisma and the way that he I, I would say he definitely was spiritually abusive in his sermons mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i don't think it i think sadly in the fundamentalist environment a lot of those preachers are trained to be that way to be mm -hmm. very emotionally psychologically abusive mm -hmm. and the sad thing is a lot of these people they're they're perpetuating abuse in these environments and they generally believe they're doing the right thing right of course and it's just really sad and like you know he passed away and like i think the pastor passed away in like 2018 and to me and I never told anyone this I was actually relieved when he died because mm -hmm. and everyone was so devastated mm -hmm. uh, of course the church and to me like not that I hated him but it's just 
I really dislike the obsession that people had with him. And to me, it's like once he died, he wouldn't have that control that he had over people anymore. And yes, people I'm sure would talk about him still, but hopefully, you know, someone, I don't know, more level-headed <laughs> would come along maybe. Um, but it's just, it's been interesting to, as I write the book, to look back on cult-like situations and behaviors in that environment. And like, you know, the IFB is just like typical cults, just all about separating from the world completely. Everyone on the outside is evil. And if you do talk with people on the outside, it's only to convert them and right. otherwise don't. And there was a lot of even like discouragement or shame, even around getting higher education mm -hmm. in the cult that I grew up in. Brother Bobby, that was one thing that also bothered me. He really, really kind of dissed, um, a college education really and said how a lot of he's like a lot of students go to these colleges and then they they change their faith or they deconvert and it's like you just stop this blah, blah blah and like he wouldn't really get into the issues really with the religion at all or why people might change their faith or leave in general it was always just be scared of higher education because you might be under satan's influence and if you do get a higher education they always had these very culty colleges that they would promote in my church that were just for like being in the ministry basically they weren't legitimate educations um but yeah i mean there there was a lot to dissect in that church and i'm still like digging into it and looking and, back but, so did did you did you leave before he died or you or what happened when he died did it, did someone else take over are your parents still involved or it's interesting my parents actually left the cult a month or so ago actually mm -hmm. and they really though they they cult hopped <laughs> that's what they did <laughs> they went to another cultic church but yeah, when the pastor died in 2018, it was interesting because the church, the church had, or the cult had been really decreasing in numbers for almost a decade. Or probably, I think it was like in 20, so eight years, it had been going and going away. And it was interesting because as a kid, I always wondered, I'm like, why is everyone leaving? And my parents always told me, oh, it's people they've been led astray by the devil or they want to go to these different churches who aren't as strict as ours and they want to sin and do all these things like they're deceived by Satan. Um, you know, we don't need to we don't need to associate with them anymore. And so I genuinely believe that as a kid. But as I've gotten older and as I've publicly came out with my story of growing up in this church and all the religious trauma, I've had so many ex-members reach out to me, be like, oh my gosh, like I was so traumatized by this church too. It was so toxic. That's why we left. And so I've had so many people talk about how, um, and it really showed me how some people were in healthy families because parents would listen, actually listen to the children and they would talk about the psychological and spiritual abuse that they endured in certain under certain leaders in the church in certain Sunday school classes. And mm. the parents saw the effect that it had on their children, and they decided to find a healthier religious environment. Mm. Now, of course, no one, when people left, no one ever told anyone why, which looking back, I see that was a smart move. <laughs> <laughs> you don't tell the cult members why you're leaving you don't call like if you call it out like you will be 
um, attacked or name called. So right. a lot of a lot of people quietly left, mm-hmm. which I think was probably the best thing mm-hmm. in that situation. But it's been interesting with a new perspective um, to look back on that. And it was interesting because my church would always say, and even in certain Sunday school classes, like, yeah, they're like, we're not a cult. It's mm-hmm. like these these other places, like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, like that's a cult, but we're mm-hmm. not because what we're teaching is absolutely true. <laughs> it's the only way. And so, you know, contradicting themselves, just showing the signs of cultic behavior. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because I've never like taken the time now to talk with my parents about how, yeah, that, that was a cult. Cause I don't think they would react well to it. Mm-hmm. I think they're still so heavily indoctrinated and they're going to another IFB church. Mm-hmm. It's a different one. And so they're still heavily indoctrinated and they're just very, very emotional mm-hmm. about it and very emotionally attached. Mm-hmm. And like, I know since I've, I, I mean, I left, I didn't leave in 2018. I actually, I left in January of this year. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> um, it just, I decided to leave around 17, 18, but I just wasn't able to. Like mm-hmm. in your situation, you weren't able to. I wasn't able to for several years to yeah. leave. And, you know, it was just really my, it was my whole world, my whole environment. And, you know, when I, was ready to go to college, my parents gave me the option to either stay at home or to go to a Christian college. Um, so, and of course the Christian college was like a very small list of what was approved that had their doctrine. And Bob Jones University, that was the one that I ended up going with. <laughs> and mm. I attended Bob Jones University and Bob Jones University, they are a cult. <laughs> They are a cult. And I you know I've done a video series on my Instagram using Lifton's model talking about why they're a cult and all that stuff. It was just once I applied that to it, I think it's like a oof, probably like a 30 plus minute video because I go all in. It's just so many cultic signs at that place. Um, but yeah, I was I was expelled from Bob Jones back in January. So that's how I got out. I was just <laughs> I, I was just excommunicated, which it needed to happen. Um, but uh, it, it's been nice to, you know, because literally once I was expelled the next week, I went to therapy because <laughs> um, I knew it was something I had needed. And I, you know, at that time, I knew I'd experienced a lot of religious trauma and I really needed to work through that mm-hmm. and you know it's been interesting because you know I think I still I would, it's something I'll probably deal with the rest of my life but I think through therapy it can be lessened and made better and I think I think one of the hardest things I guess was letting go of the expectation of perfection mm-hmm. uh, letting this idea of that oh like I have to be completely healed I have to n- not have any triggers whatsoever but I think letting go of that idea of oh I have to be know almost perfect has made it easier to work through that because that was a trauma in and of itself a a reaction to trauma having that perfectionistic yeah um tendency and you know as we get close (laughs) to the end of this interview i'm just curious have you experienced harassment from any cults um i have a well i've been sued twice oh Um, my yeah which wasn't fun um what um both margaret singer and i got sued 
by landmark for our book cults in mm -hmm. our midst yeah um, which they eventually um dropped the case um and then the other one was the fellowship of friends sued me for um there was a scandal with the leader um having mm. sex with a lot of the young men and oh. there was a big article in the LA Times, the, the Sacramento edition of the LA Times. And um, I had just met Margaret Singer and I had just met with a group of like 20, 25 people. Some of them had left, some were thinking of leaving. Anyway, we all got interviewed for this article. So Fellowship of Friends sued the LA Times and, and then everybody mm. who was quoted in the article. Um, oh no. Luckily, I had in, I had my off a little office then, and I had insurance on my office, which mm. um, provided me with an attorney who is the most wonderful guy. He's like one of my oh. best friends now. Mm, that's great. <laughs> yeah, and um, so that case, we filed a slap statute, a slap suit, which is in California. Um, if you're a pub, basically we have this thing called the slap statute, which says if mm -hmm. if you're a public figure and you get criticized by people, you have to just take it. Like if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, right? So oh, yeah. A public figure, people can say whatever the hell they want about you and it's mm -hmm. not, right? Um, and so we filed the slap suit because this cult was well known. They had a winery, mm -hmm. you know, was they were a public figure so we won and if you win a slap suit then the other side has to pay all the legal fees so that was fantastic um, yeah yeah so other than that i've <clears throat> you know sometimes when i've given talks public talks um mm -hmm. people from a certain group will turn up and try to harass me and it doesn't bother me i know how to handle them mm. <laughs> and <clears throat> and that's really been pretty much it i haven't <clears throat> i mean there's really only <clears throat> i mean landmark is very litigious and is very mm -hmm. you know he'll sued a lot of newspapers and journals and stuff like that oh wow um, and then there's the other group who sues a lot of people who i just don't ever talk about that other group and i let people mm. who in that group talk about that group because i want to yeah. stay out of their radar yeah um, because they did a number on my colleague Margaret Singer, and I do that. So wow. Um, so um, I, I there was a question I wanted to ask you. Oh, do you know about my book about children growing up in cults? Because that really <gasps> relates oh, to your story. What is it called? Is that what it's called? Children growing up? No, it's called Escaping Utopia, and the subtitle is Growing Up in a Cult, Getting Out, and Starting Over. Oh, wow. And, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, I need to look into that. That is yeah. interesting. Yeah, and it was based on, I interviewed like 68 or 67 people who grew up in a cult mm. um, and who left on their own, um, yeah. e either in adolescence or early adulthood. And mm. it was from 39 different cults. Um, also, not just in the United States, different countries. Mm -hmm. and, um, a few. It was more women than men because women mm -hmm. tend to be out more than men do when they get out of cults. But 
anyway, it's um, it was heartbreaking doing that research because I, you know, I would interview people mostly over the phone because I I didn't, you know, my university didn't have the kind of money that would let you travel all over. Just get off the phone, and I would just cry and cry and cry. Uh, you know the story. The yeah, abuse, the abuse of children who grow up in cults. Mm, um, yeah. Anyway, I thought that's something you might want to check out. It's 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 in print and in audio. So. Oh, awesome! Yeah, I will definitely look into that. Like, I'm always looking for like yeah. new books. <laughs> I have a long Amazon wish list of books. Yeah, that I know what you mean. <laughs> oh my. I keep buying books and they keep stacking up and I don't think I can ever read them all before I die, but whatever. I like to support <laughs> authors. So. Oh, that's great. And I think, you know, it's exciting because August is Colts Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the first time this has happened, right? This is the first year? I think so, yeah. Okay, got you. Yeah, so I think for anyone listening, um, this is the yeah first month of cult awareness. I think the organization they I think they're called like International Cult Awareness Month or something. They just decided they called themselves. Yeah. Um, Freedom Train Project. Oh, Freedom oh. Train Project. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's great, Tabby. She was in Nexium. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Got you. Um. And so, obviously, I'm gonna put links to your books for Thank people. You. And then your your website also has a lot of great information on cults. But are there any other like cult education things you recommend for people? No, I think there's there are a lot of um, various checklists and things on my website. Oh, perfect. And then, um, you know, we'll we will be offering our courses again. Uh, my colleague, who's a trauma therapist. Um, probably mm-hmm. we're probably going to take the fall to kind of reorganize but if people just mm-hmm. um, check into my website or my facebook page i have yeah. also, uh, um mm-hmm. yanya knowledge's resources on cults and coercion is my mm-hmm. sort of professional facebook page there will always be announcements there of things that we're doing or new books or whatever so Yes. Yeah, I really want to thank you. This was really interesting. Oh, yes, of course. I really enjoyed this. And then one more question, I guess, mm-hmm. that I forgot, which I think I usually ask this question for a lot of guests, but like since you're a cult expert, I feel like yours will be the most accurate answer. So, like, what advice do you have for people who are trapped in cultic environments and really want to leave? Well, I think the most important thing is to um think about what your resources are and make a really good plan. Um, it, you know, if you, if you can leave, I mean, you, when you leave, you're probably going to get maligned. That's just what mm. cults do. And so I think it depends, like if you're going to leave on your own and you're leaving family behind, that's a really hard thing to do or yeah. children or your, or, or your kids who are leaving and leaving your parents behind. So you have to think all that through. Mm-hmm. I think the you know the best thing is to think about who on the outside would be a good support system for you and that's why I always tell people on the outside let that person know that you're a safe haven that they can come to because you want to have a place where you can just kind of go and crash and not be grilled or make you talk mm-hmm. or what like if you want to sleep sleep so I yeah. think most importantly is finding a good support system so that you don't, if you don't have resources, you can get some help from friends or family or whoever. Mm-hmm. There's very few 
social services available, which is unfortunate but true, Mm. but you don't want to end up, you know, sleeping in the streets or couch surfing or whatever. So hopefully you find some resources to help you. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. It is really sad with how little resources there are for people Mm -hmm. to escape cult because I've I've had several people reach out to me and like I they're like I really need resources (laughs) to get out and I'm like searching the internet and I'm like oh like this is not good. It's difficult. It's it is it's so difficult. So yeah, there are different people. They'll do a GoFundMe and I'll I'll try to like promote it the best I can to help people raise Mm -hmm. money. To mm-hmm. escape cult. So I, I'm hoping there are organizations that will come out and help people um, yeah, some, leave cults. Yeah, some of the groups um, have like 12 Tribes has something and oh, really? Children of God. I mean, okay. there are several groups that mm-hmm. do try to help each other when, when someone's coming out, they'll mm-hmm. say, hey, somebody put this person up, whatever. But not every group has that. So that's yeah. why if if the person knows of relatives on the outside maybe it's somebody you even haven't talked to in forever mm. look them up you know if they were not part of the cult or maybe they left mm-hmm. those people up and see if they'll help you because often they will you know so mm. check your brain and think about who might be out there who could support you mm. yes well definitely Thank you so much, Yanya, for coming on. All right. Thanks, Andrew. This was great. Of course. I really love this conversation and I cannot wait for people to hear. I think it's an an important one because I think, thankfully, you know, there's more awareness around cults now, but it's interesting because I've heard different numbers on how many cults there are, at least in America. And I don't think it's accurate because there are a lot of hidden spaces and hidden cults. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm so thankful for the work that you've done and what you're still doing now to bring awareness and through your books and, you know, for anyone listening, I'll link her books in her um, website below to check out that. And like, please like share her website and her books um, this month for cult awareness, buy her books, promote it. Um, thank you again for Thanks, coming Andy. on. Yanya. Thanks. Do you know uh, when this will air or when you'll drop it or whatever the I word mean, Got you. Yeah. I mean, now I feel like this is a perfect episode for cult awareness month. So I'm hoping now I'm thinking I might have it as like an extra episode this month. And I'll let you know when I decide what date this month, because I feel like to bring awareness um, to the cult awareness month. Uh, But yeah, I'll definitely let you know about that. Okay. Um, And then thank you everyone to listening and please spread awareness of cult awareness month. This podcast is distributed by Anchor from Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast. Everything you need is in one space. Anchor has the tools to record, edit, and distribute your podcast. And it's all free. Download the Anchor app. Or go to Anchor FM to start creating your own podcast today. Thank you for listening to Speaking Up with Andrew Pledger. Please support the show by sharing, donating, or leaving a review. Your support is much appreciated.